Chase Thomas podcast. The Chase Thomas podcast. Um, my nephew needs me to record. See, I hate. I already hate it. I hate it. All right, hello, and welcome back to a man. I don't even know how to start this. To uh, just the the worlds are colliding with the Boston Red Sox, the New York Yankees. There is a wild card, sudden death situation. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, the game's already happened. But clairvoyant John Taylor of Fangrass.com is here to tell you exactly what would happen in this game before you heard it. John, what what happened tonight uh, for the good folks when they're listening in tomorrow? Uh, chaos, destruction, ruin, mm. sadness, misery. Mm. That's a wild card game, baby. How are you feeling right now? Because you mentioned on Twitter.com where the good folks can follow you at J.A. Taylor. You tweeted out the progression of your Boston Red Sox fandom and, and how it's evolved over the years. Uh, can you illuminate a little bit more on that? Yeah, I mean, this is probably a very Red Sox fan slash spoiled fan thing. But for me, it's win or lose. Like, I... I've reached the point for myself with the Red Sox where win or lose playoff-wise, title-wise, like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see them win the, the World Series, but I've, I've already seen it happen four times in the last 17 years. So, you know, okay, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. If they win tonight, great. And if they lose tonight, okay, life goes on. There's still plenty of other cool baseball teams I can watch. I'm not going to tie my happiness or October enjoyment to them specifically. Mm. However... Can they please just not embarrass themselves mm-hmm. in a one-game single elimination against literally their greatest rival? That's all I'm asking for. You can lose like 4-2, to two and you give up three runs in the fifth inning or something, and you just lose a nice, quiet ball game. That's okay. I can work with that. I can work with a nice, quiet loss. Just please don't get like... Don't, don't, don't blow like a six-run lead. Don't give up eight runs in the first inning. Don't like, don't lose because you made six errors or something. Just, 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 just be normal. Be normal. Be a normal game. I know I'm not gonna get a normal game. You never, you never get a normal wild card game. You either get this crazy topsy turvy up and down nonsense, or you get a blowout. It feels like there've been very few close normal wild card games. It's just, strange. Just normalcy, please. Yeah, um, I would say this is less likely to be normal than the the Cardinals Dodgers game. That that's my my gut instinct here is that the Cardinals Dodgers will actually just be really sad because Max Scherzer's just going to mow them down and the Dodgers bullpen just locks it up and it's it's just a an easy win for the Dodgers. That's what I'm I, I, I my that's where I'm at right now. But the Yankees Red Sox is just that like I think in his three starts in Boston, Garrett Cole's been roughed up and he's he's not been good in Boston this year. Nate Evaldi is like the better option going into this game. Um, it's just weird to trust Evaldi more than Garrett Cole went uh, going into a, a wild card single elimination showdown. Um, no JD Martinez for your team. Uh, Rafael Devers obviously was huge over the weekend, but um, I'm very fascinated because I, I don't trust the Boston Red Sox bullpen. I don't necessarily trust the Yankees lineup. Um, I don't know. There's there's a lot of interesting stuff. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see what happens here. Give me uh, give me your final score prediction, and we'll see next week how right you were. I think the Yankees win. Mm. I think it's something like five to two. Okay. 
Um, I don't have really any faith in the Red Sox offense right now to get runs off of anyone. Um, I know, obviously, by the time people hear this, the wild card game will be over. There's no real point of previewing it. But my, my take is generally that the combination of Garrett Cole plus the good parts of the Yankees bullpen plus Judge and Stanton plus some combination of Red Sox screwing up probably adds up to a wild card win for New York. There you go. There you go. Um, I don't know. I'm going to say the Red Sox win this. I'm going to say the Red Sox win this and Cole gets roughed up. That is going to be my guess. Um, Dodgers cards on the flip side, on the NL side. Tomorrow, um, Wainwright, 40 years old versus Max Scherzer. Um, what, what What is your gut telling you on this one? How do you see this one going? I think the Dodgers so, win this. I mean, this, I mean, this Wainwright versus Scherzer is just going to be fun. I... I mean, I like you. I, I think that it's usually folly to bet against Scherzer, uh, especially because he's so good against right-handed hitters, and this Cardinals lineup really does not have any left-handed thump. Or, or I think the only two left-handed hitters in this lineup are, are Tommy Edmond and uh, there's another. There's a one other that's escaping me. The point is there, there's not a lot of left-handed anything in, in Jim Edmonds' offense. I'm sorry? Jim Edmonds? Possibly. I may have been thinking of Jim Edmonds. Mm-hmm. Um, may have been thinking of was Kenny Lofton ever on the Cardinals, or was he only ever on Cleveland and Atlanta? I think he was on Cleveland and Atlanta. I could be I wrong. Think so. yeah. Anyway, point being, that does give Scherzer the edge, I think, but he did not pitch well his last two starts. He hasn't really been a kind of playoff superstar of late. I mean, I know that's, you know, it, that's kind of the thing when you talk about the wildcard game. You can you can bounce around every all the statistics and matchups you want, and like, but there is that silly playoff stuff like, oh, what did he do last postseason? Is he normally a good playoff performance? Like, it's, analysis for the one card, one game wild card game. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. It, it's just going to depend on how much they get out of how much the Dodgers get out of Scherzer and whether Wainwright can keep the Dodgers off the board early. Uh, the other thing, obviously, for LA is they don't have Max Muncy. Their lineup is still really, really good without him, but it is obviously much better with him. So I will be interested to see how they deal with that. I mean, that's more I think of a, if they make it going forward. Is that a, is that a, a a huge problem for them in the division series? But either way, I, I think I, I picked LA to win this. Uh, I think that the Dodgers. I mean, they have the the starting pitching advantage there. They have just the better overall team. But obviously, in the one game playoff, the better overall team matters virtually zero. So. We shall see, but my, my prediction right now is Dodgers. That That's where I'm going. It's funny that, uh, because this is baseball, that um, the team with the best run differential in baseball is in the wild card game in a, in a single elimination situation. What are the odds? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's wild. I mean, this this is... I mean, if you're a Dodgers fan, you can be either pissed that 106 wins earns you just one game against a franchise that has historically just stepped all over you in these scenarios, yeah, I guess that's it. You can just be pissed. I mean, I mean, that's just that's the reality of the playoffs. Sometimes that happens with the with the wild card. I mean, Dodgers fans can also look at it. I mean, I, I don't think at this point Major League Baseball is ever going to go back to the one to the automatic one wild card. I think the wild card game has been both too popular and too successful for them to leave that behind. So, yeah, I, I mean, that's just it sucks for the Dodgers. It sucks for Dodgers fans. Although they literally both won a World Series last year, so I'm not going to be too. And I'm not going to be shedding too many tears, but you know, I and I think if you polled most baseball fans, you'd probably get the response that they prefer having a wild card game than just having the automatic. Uh, whoever wins the wild card makes it to the division series. And I mean, I know on the one hand that could have given us Dodgers Giants, which would have been really really fun for a five game series. We still might get Dodgers Giants, but 
Yeah, I mean, it's also, you know, the, I think the, like, we've talked a little bit about this. I think the Cardinals earned their way here. They were a great team in the second half. They played really well. Uh, obviously, they got to take advantage of Cincinnati and San Diego falling apart down the end, especially San Diego. But, you know, these are these are both legitimate playoff teams. And I think this is, you know, it's is not is it a fair format? No, but I don't think it's an unfair uh, system necessarily. I mean, if nothing else, it's fun. And that's the whole point of the playoffs. Playoffs are fun. Absolutely. So what you're saying is add more teams. Um, Luis Rojas not coming back to the New York Mets. An absolute stunner out of Queens this week. Right, John? Oh, yeah. Nobody <laughs> saw this one coming. I think it's funny, like, for as much as everyone's, like, just kind of sitting on their hands waiting for the Jace Tangler has been relieved of his duties uh, announcement that when the Luis Rojas thing came and went, everyone just kind of went, well, yeah, we know that. Like, duh. Everyone's known that since, like, since, like mid-August at this point. Mm-hmm. Um... It, it's a it's a shame for Rojas, but it's not a surprise as we're both hopefully making abundantly clear. Uh, he was for starters. I mean, I, I was talking to people about it uh, yesterday that I think Rojas never really managed to get past the fact that he was the interim manager. That he not even the interim manager, but he always felt like an accidental manager because uh, of course it was supposed to be Carlos Beltran running these Mets, but then he got taken down in the aftermath of the Astro sign stealing scandal. And it became Rojas, who who led the team the last two seasons. I mean, I don't think he was necessarily a bad manager. I think with more time and a little more patience and maybe in a different environment that is not New York, he could have gotten better. But I think the way he was a manager, certainly it didn't really seem like he had a very strong uh, tactical grasp on things. It certainly didn't seem like he ran the clubhouse all that well, given the variety of issues that seemed to spill forth into public view, which is... Presumably manager job number one nowadays is keep that stuff under wraps and keep and figure things out in private. But the Mets, because of the Mets, clearly couldn't do that. Uh, so no, no, there's no surprise here that he got let go. I have no clue who the Mets are going to be looking at. I, If it were me, you know, if I were the one making this decision, I would go as veteran as I can. Uh, Dusty Baker is not going to have his job, presumably as the Astros manager, unless my, I, I can't say for sure, but it doesn't seem like they're all that intent on keeping him. That would be, I think, a great uh, a great ad addition there, or a great possibility there is Dusty Baker. I know Mets fans have their their dreams of who are even Mets fans dreaming about. What who is the dream managerial candidate for Mets fans at this point? Well, I think the bigger thing, and this has been something that Steve Cohen just nailed, was the new fonts. I think they're they're more excited about the font coverage that they're getting. Um, I think that's an important development uh, for Mets fans. But if it's not the new fonts that are coming around the corner. I think the the bigger thing is, uh, what are we doing about Michael Conforto? What are we doing about off-season spending? What are we doing with the pitching rotation? What are we doing with the bullpen? What are we and doing? I mean, yeah, it, should, it should also be noted that I, I have to imagine that whoever the new manager is, they're not going to pick them yet because they presumably want to get a new... I mean, I don't know exactly what the job is going to be because I'm not sure now what Sandy Alderson's title and or role is because by the end of the year, he was the general manager, but I don't think he will be the general manager going forward, obviously. I imagine the the Mets will want to figure that out first before they hire a manager. But Well, that's why you employed the son. Yeah, that's true. That's why you just have Sandy Alderson's son there. Maybe they can just make Sandy Alderson's grandkid the manager if he has one. That would solve a lot of problems. <laughs> I mean, the rumor uh, right now is Bean or, or Epstein with, with a stake in the club, right? Like, I just, I don't think that's going to happen. I just, I don't. No, I mean, it, I did find it interesting that Billy Bean gave a pretty weak no mm. when asked about it. 
He did well, it's not probably like there's a number. He did not say no chance. He just said, well, it's like, a, you know, it'd be a great job, but, you know, I got the things I got to do here in Oakland. I mean, it, it, I, mean I, I, I think I've said it before. I would not be surprised at all if Billy Bean leaves the A's at this point. I think that has been... I'm surprised he hasn't already. Um, well, didn't he almost leave for soccer? Am I misremembering that? But that's the thing. Like, I, I had assumed that soccer would be his next step because he's, he's always shown an interest. He is, I believe, a part-time owner in a soccer team somewhere. Mm-hmm. I can't remember which one. But especially with the way that the A's are now and the feeling, and I think the, the realistic, the, or the reality rather, that this A's team, unless ownership changes, will just never be able to get past kind of where it is that this the ceiling for this team really is wild card team or accidental division champion with like 93 wins that gets bumped in the first round um it just doesn't seem like the a's are ever going to be allowed to improve from there so i wouldn't be surprised if bean is thinking about what it would be like to run a team with infinite money essentially with steve cohen i presume that he would be the one who could tell steve cohen if you put me in charge of decision making i will make sure your money is used well but we'll see but yeah, I, I'd always kind of assumed that Bean's next step was either full-on ownership or something in a different sport. So well, maybe I, that's I'll what Mets offer. Managed, I'll be interested to see if they manage to to convince him, but we shall see. Well, I just think it, there's going to be like that number. You're not a, I mean, you're you're a big college football guy, but you mostly stick to like the BYU's, the Navy's, the the Air Forces um, when you when you dive into college football on Saturdays, John. But uh, there's this head coach, Mel Tucker up there in East Lansing, uh, Michigan State, where he bef- he kept saying no. He was the head coach of Colorado, and he kept saying no, no, no. And then they just kept raising their offer. Like, Michigan State just kept raising it, and he's finally like, all right, I guess. Do y'all want to actually pay me that much money? And uh, he-, he finally took it. And I wonder if that's just going to be the case with Theo or Billy. It's just that, like, Cohen just keeps coming back and he's like what is it gonna he's just texting back and forth or he's tweeting at him like what if i offered you this what uh he quote tweets and they go back and forth on that front because that's that seems like where we're heading with this is just uh him tweeting out negotiations in real time but um yeah mets in for another very not normal winner i suspect uh john i'm concerned about even bringing this up to you before we get into our our reasons to believe and not to believe in in every playoff team this year but I would be remiss if I did not uh, give you this opportunity to talk about our beloved Colorado Rockies, your guys, the Montfort brothers, bringing back everybody, giving new titles to everyone in the organization. They were over 500 post May 30th. John, mission accomplished, raised the banners. Colorado has made Bill Schmidt the the GM of the future. No more interim tag. No more. No more question marks. Uh, this is great. And uh, you know what, Trevor Story, they, they they want you to know they that you know how they feel about you. That's good enough. And uh, the Rockies are fine. Nothing to see here. You know, anytime you can run it back with an eighty-seven win <laughs> team or an eighty-seven loss team, you just have to. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think anyone in baseball knows what the Rockies are doing at this point, including the Rockies, to the point where criticizing or going over their moves seems kind of pointless because it just doesn't matter. This was a bad team this year for very obvious reasons that the front office more or less ignored. This is going to be a very bad team next year for reasons that the front office is going to ignore. 
Um, there is talent here. There is legitimate talent, and I think that's probably the most frustrating thing if you're a Rockies fan is that this team actually. I don't. I don't know if great is ever something that the Rockies are capable of. Just because I. I do think Coors Field is just too big an obstacle to overcome. There is quite literally nothing you can do about it, and the Rockies have tried virtually everything. And I just feel like at a certain point, there. There is no. So, there is no solving Coors Field. It's just something you live with. But I mean, you look at what the roster is going to be next year. Yes, you're losing Story. Uh, you are going to lose Charlie Blackman because you are not going to pay him $21 million next year to be 35 and a bad corner outfielder. You're losing John Gray, probably. And you're losing... Well, that's about it. But... Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, it's just kind of sick. Yeah, sure, you can can re-sign Antonio Senzatella and CJ Krohn if you want. You can extend them, rather. I guess in in the case of Krohn, you you re-sign him because he was going to be a free agent this winter. In the case of Senzatella, you're you're extending him because you're buying out his next two years of arbitration. But for a team that, on the one hand, traded away uh, Nolan Arenado in part to save $170-some million over the next how many ever years, and then to turn around and give... 60-some million of those dollars to Antonio Senzatella and C.J. Crone to be basically average. And I know Senzatella was good this year, but nothing about his peripherals as a uh, as a low-strikeout, contact-oriented guy who does not throw particularly hard. That is the last kind of person you want to invest in as a, as a, as a Rockies team that has to pay, play a Coors Field half the year. And Crone is fine. He had a perfectly good season this year. He's a, he's always been a very cromulent kind of both bench bat and slugging first baseman. And the price there, I think, is fine. And whatever, you still need a first baseman next year because I I don't know. I actually, I mean, the other thing is I don't know why you wouldn't just simply plug Ryan McMahon in at first base and then let Brendan Rodgers get a full season at second base and just finally see what it is you actually have there. But again, this is the Rockies. They just make decisions. I mean... Maybe they are also assuming that there will be an, uh, a, a, a universal DH next year, and they can just plug Crone in there. And if nothing else, if things fall apart again, they can deal him at the deadline, maybe, but they didn't deal anyone else at the deadline. So that's the thing. There's no point in trying to figure out what the internal logic of doing this is, because once you start to project it out forward, you're like, but wait, that would involve them doing something they didn't do before. And wait, don't they already have a guy for this position that they really should be looking at a little closer instead of spending more time on a 32-year-old hitter who everyone knows? C.J. Crone is a good hitter, but there's always C.J. Crones. There will, you'll never run out of C.J. Crones in Major League Baseball. And with Senz- it's the same thing with Senzatella. Senzatella is fine, but he's a back-of-your-rotation guy. You're never going to struggle to find those guys. Mm. It, it's it's just so strange to me what the Rockies choose to prioritize and what they don't. And I understand that Story Story was not going to come back. He's not coming back. He is very clearly tired of this franchise, and I do not blame him. He's going to go somewhere where he has a chance to win and where the team around him is not just doesn't seem to be some kind of elaborate prank. But it really does tell you kind of who the Rockies are and what they value when they make moves like this. And the ultimate conclusion you come to is they just don't know what they're doing. Which, I mean, that is a way to go, but I think you also get that by the fact that they made their GM the guy who was an interim who did not only did nothing during his chunk of the season, but also comes from the business side of operations. He's not a baseball operations guy. He's not a former player. He's not a a former scout. He's not an analytics guy. He's not an R&D guy. 
He just ran their he ran their business ops. Why would you make him your GM? There's so many young guys out there in baseball toiling away as assistant GMs or assistant to assistant or assistant assistant GMs or whatever they are, who would probably be over the moon if you gave them the challenge of fix the Rockies. Especially because no big G, no big name general manager or expensive general manager is going to take on this mess at this point. The Monforts are too meddling of an ownership, and the Rockies are too bad of a team, and Coors Field is too big of a problem. But you think somewhere out there, some some young person or some person who's already had a shot and it didn't work out would give anything just for the second shot. And you would think the Rockies would be at the point where they're like, do whatever you want. Try anything. Because everything we have tried in our franchise has not worked except for literally twice. Well, wait, there's the 2017 that made the World Series. Was there any other Rockies team that was ever actually, like, good, good? I mean, nothing comes to mind. Yeah, okay, so fine. They made the... They got lucky one time with the, yes. the as a franchise, and they and use they that as a, like, and they, and they got wiped out with prejudice by a much better <laughs> Red Sox team. They haven't gotten functionally anything right except for a couple things here and there and a few seasons of contention in the last fourteen years. And their decision is to and their decision to try to improve it after fourteen years of kind of just slapping about is to give the team over to a guy who doesn't know who does not run a team before. And to start handing out extensions to one war players. I don't get it, man. I just, I don't. There's nothing to get with the Rockies because they are just not a smart team. And they are not going to be a smart team until, at this point, I think it's one of those things where until the Monforts are no longer in charge. Because the stupid seems to flow from the head down. Or at the very least, the bad decisions seem to start at the top. And I don't know how you fix that. Again, without it's it's similar, I think, to what the Mets were facing, where it's how much can you really get done with ownership that that's bad, that's that bad. Except then you also have to toss in Coors Field and the huge talent gap uh, that exists with the current Rockies and the pre and the pre Steve Cohen Mets. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't see any room for optimism. I, I talked to Stacy about this on Sunday night of just that, like, who are you more more dubious of ever getting out of this this just pit of despair uh between the pirates and the rockies and i actually would lean pirates I lean the pirates yeah i don't believe in I mean, either the pirates are the pirates are cheap yeah. and that's always going to be their the ceiling for them is that bob nutting is never ever going to invest in this team any ever being any good they are always going to be one of those teams that lucks their way into 85 plus wins because they happen to pick the right pieces of treasure out of the trash <laughs> but at least you get this. At least you get the sense that things are more normal there. They're just cheap and bad. The the, the the or at least or that the decision makers in charge of the pirates aren't as bad as the decision makers in charge of the Rockies. I, I'm not a fan of Ben Sherrington as a general manager. I think he was a pretty bad one in Boston with uh, his fluke World Series notwithstanding. Mm. I would much rather I ten, I'll take him ten times out of ten running my team than Bill Schmidt and the non-existent. Uh, analytics and R&D folks in the Rockies front office. Again, remember, this is a team that does basically does not have an analytics group right now. Who needs them when is, you're in Rocktober? It's it's un it's unfathomable to me that a team in 2021 can is not doing this stuff, mm. and not even as a matter of like, oh, we're zigging where everyone else is <laughs> just they just don't have it, mm-hmm. and they don't seem to care. It's I I I don't I don't know. Thinking about the Rockies gives me a headache sometimes because it's just like it's it's pointless wondering about them because every year you look at them in a preseason thing and you're and you're always thinking like oh what about the Rockies and immediately your brain just goes yeah they're useless. 
Do you see why I hesitated to bring this up to you tonight? It's supposed to be a happy day. You got Red Sox, Yankees tonight, MLB postseason, a beautiful, beautiful time. Postseason. It just, and I, truthfully, like, the Rockies being bad is not something that gives me, like, pain. Mm-hmm. I kind of like there being a bad team like there used to be back in the 90s. It just makes bad decisions because they don't know any better. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's just the, the sad thing to me is, like, when was the last time you were, you felt excited or optimistic about the Colorado Rockies? Well, I just think more if you're a fan, it's like, I don't even know. Because even like the bad ones, the Orioles, like you still have some top of the line prospects coming up. You still have Mullins and Mancini and Means. You still have some reasons, reasons to go um, to these games. I don't understand what there is to believe in. Like there's no young talent. They're not developing well. The farm system stinks. They're not going to pay to bring in some veterans. Like there is no room. They're just boring. They're not even bad enough to just get a number one, number two pick. They... They beat out the D-backs <laughs> this season. They they came close to the Padres. Um, I just, I don't know. They're just sad across the board, and I have no idea what's in store for them this offseason. But nothing good, I would say. Nothing good, John Taylor. Well, let's get into the actual teams who made the postseason. we got the Brewers. we got the Braves. we got the Giants. we got the Astros, the White Sox, the Rays. Now that we've seen the, the final group, and we'll see like what happens to the wild card stuff, but... Are we, like, I guess the Giants are the obvious biggest surprise, but before the season, this is about what we expected, right? Like, the Rays, we, we were yeah. curious about Pakoda. Yeah. For, for as topsy-turvy a season as it kind of felt sometimes, the, the playoff results ended up being pretty chalk. I mean, I think most people predicted the Rays, Yan- the Rays or Yankees would win the AL East, and the Rays did, and the Yankees made the playoffs anyway. I think most people predicted the White Sox would win the Central one. There you go. Mm-hmm. Most people probably predicted the Astros would win the West. There you go. Uh, the Braves were a pretty popular NLEs pick. There you go. Uh, I think the Central, I mean, who knows with the Central? I don't even remember who I picked with the Central. I think I picked Cincinnati, but St. Louis isn't a surprise by any stretch. I or picked Cincinnati too. Central, Milwaukee, sorry, uh, mm-hmm. isn't a surprise by any stretch. And the Gi- I mean, the, the true real shocker is the Giants winning the West. Yeah. That's the one where I think everybody's like, how the hell did we how did the hell do we get a hundred and seven win Giants team in the same division as a hundred and six win Dodgers team? That makes no sense. But otherwise, no, every everyone who's here makes sense to be here. And in the case of the Giants, while we couldn't have seen this coming preseason, I don't think there's anyone left who will tell you that this Giants team fluked its way into the postseason. They're a legitimate contender and they're a very good team. So yeah, it's I mean that's that's the funny thing about this current era and stretch of baseball is that it's, there's a very clear division between the the real contenders and along with them the teams that can be contenders and then the rest of the league. You know, and the rest of the league, you know, it's like the, the surprises I think this season were more teams like the Padres failing to make the playoffs because it never at any real point did it look like any of those kind of smaller dark horse teams were going to do it. You know, we I know we had talked a bit, or I talked a bit about the offseason, like maybe like a Kansas City, maybe a... Uh, maybe like a, a a Los Angeles, the Angels, maybe a you know maybe a Cincinnati didn't happen, and yeah, I mean, so I, I think this is pretty much what everyone expected. I think from I don't again, I don't remember what my preseason predictions were, and quite honestly, who cares? But I think for most people, like if they were to look at the if they were to look at if you show them this playoff bracket at the start of the season, they would go, yeah, that looks right. Yeah, and I think uh, we, we're we good on the how the Giants did this pieces. I've read like four different ones all saying basically the same. I I, I'm, I know how the Giants did this. 
you're not going to believe this shot. I know, I know what happened here. I know how the Giants pulled this off. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're a great story though. And they're, I think it was Matt Snyder of CBS Sports who wrote a good one where it was just that like, this is something you celebrate. Um, not doing the full teardown and trying to build from within and uh, hiring correctly and, and taking huge flyers and huge gambles on the Kevin Gaussmans of the world, but also doing right by your vets and Posey and Crawford and Belt. And um, I don't, I don't know if I still believe it's going to be weird. Like they can make the world series and I'm still just like, I don't know. I don't know about this giants club, but the giants being good and the giants uh, playing these cold, cold games, postseason games. It's uh, it's going to feel right in the world um, as the, the playoffs kick off. Um, let's do, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do a reason to believe in this team and a reason not to believe in this team uh, to make a world series run. We'll start with the brewers, the team, um, I think we can we can agree that America collectively is rooting against the Milwaukee Brewers in the Hank Aaron Bowl, the Hank Aaron Memorial Series uh, between the Braves and the Brewers. Um, just by running the numbers, it seems that uh, by rooting for Milwaukee in this series is akin to rooting for fascism. Nice. And uh, that is something to keep in mind. And uh, we'll, we'll see how that that plays a role. The Battle of the Petersons. You got Jace versus Jock. People are people are wondering how that matchup is going to go. But I'm excited. Uh, the Braves are just weird. And Charlie Morton's awesome. Max Fried's awesome. The bullpen. Will Smith makes it uncomfortable, but he's been uh, he's been solid. They're healthier than they've been outside of Acuna. Top of this lineup's great. I don't know what's going to happen with Freddie Freeman this winter. That scares me, but that is something we'll figure out later. I think the Braves should win the series, all that kind of stuff. We'll get into the Braves, but with the Milwaukee Brewers and the way they're constructed, give me a reason to believe in them making a World Series run and give me a reason not to believe. Uh, the reason, too, is pretty simple. It's Corbin Burns and Brandon Woodruff. Mm. Uh, Burns is maybe your NL Cy Young. If, the, if nothing else, he's going he's gonna to be a finalist for sure. Woodruff has also obviously been very, very good. And then behind them, you have Freddie Peralta, who's very good. Adrian Hauser's had a very good season. Eric Lowers. The reason to believe is the pitching and not just the rotation, but also with the exception of Devin Williams, who's now going to be out for the next couple weeks because he drunkenly punched a wall, which, hey, it's been a very good bullpen too. one one name in particular to keep in mind if he does make the NLDS roster is Aaron Ashby, who has been very good for Milwaukee, both out of the bullpen and as a spot starter. I think that's someone who, if they need him, could be an interesting kind of two inning guy in the middle of games. Uh, maybe help take, maybe help carry some of that load with Devin Williams gone, so they don't have to push Josh Hader too hard. Uh, that to me is reason enough to believe in Milwaukee that they have the pit. They're going to have the pitching advantage pretty much every series going forward, uh, unless they match up even, even if they match up with the Dodgers, and that would be really something to get Corbin Burns against Max Scherzer or Brandon Woodruff against Walker Bueller. They have the pitching to make it work, and while the offense isn't particularly great it's not a terrible one either it's a fair number of league average hitters so you're not you know this isn't a team that's squeaking by winning two to one three to one every single night but if they make it to the world series it's going to be because of the pitching first and foremost yeah i think that's what's interesting is like do we believe in the pitching enough because when you look at that offense man that lineup stinks like i don't know how they score it's, runs it's not a great offense i mean i will note that there are a lot of with uh, Narvaez, Vogelbach, uh, Colton Wong, and Jackie Bradley Jr. all being lefties. There are a lot of opportunities to platoon and to do some switch-ups there. I mean, I think the thing you run into is that, for starters, Christian Yelich is just 
for whatever happened to him after the 2019 season or during the 2020 season remains an issue. And that is something that the, I mean, I don't think the Brewers can count on really anything there aside from maybe he remembers who he is randomly. Uh, it's really not great, I guess, when Luis Adame, or Luis Urias and Willie Adamez and Abisayo Garcia are kind of the ones carrying you. But yeah, it's not a great offense. I think the one positive for the Brewers is that aside from JBJ in center field, who is where he has been just offensively a total catastrophe, they're not really running out anyone who's going to hurt you in ter- or hurt them in terms of putting up. Uh, there's no obvious hole here. There are a lot of guys who are just plain, average, normal. You know, you're, they're not going to hurt you either. But there are not a lot of spots where you're just you're just giving up uh, competitive at bats. Really, as it stands right now, it's only when Jackie Bradley Jr. plays, and I guess depending on the rest of the lineup with the pitcher spot and you know wherever else they want to go. Because you know they do have uh, this is the thing where they have valuable bench guys like Eduardo Escobar and Rowdy Telez and Jace Peterson, like you said, and and you know the elder Lorenzo Kane and Tyrone Taylor. These are guys who can you could they can plug in as they need and just kind of it's a variable lineup, it's a modular lineup. And I think that helps for Milwaukee's. I think it helps them paper over some of those kind of what would be bigger holes that you'd expect. It's also a good defensive lineup. I think especially in the infield with Wong and Adames, who are both uh, Wong is of course fantastic. Adames can certainly handle himself at short. Uh, even if Jackie Bradley Jr. is not hitting, he is still the, one of the five best center fielders in baseball. Uh, this is it's just a solid team. I think, you know, the one thing that you said probably keeping them from being true World Series contenders is that you don't really have that kind of dangerous portion of the lineup you you have to tiptoe through every year or every every trip around uh, that every other roster seemingly does. That is going to be a problem, I think. But it's also less of a problem when you know that you have a guy on the mound where them giving up more than two runs is going to be is not usual. So, you know, that that also helps the offense. They're not being asked to put up six runs a game. They're being asked to put up three to four. And that's doable for this team, I think. The Braves. Reason to believe, not believe. So, yeah, for Atlanta, I think it's more the individual pieces than any one portion of the team. It's having Charlie Morton being able to go opposite Burns. It's having Freed and Anderson. It's having um, a bullpen that, aside from Will Smith, has been pretty good. And I... I mean that. I guess that is like the one question for for uh, Brian Snitker is 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 Will Smith your ninth inning guy in this series? You know, I would is, say yes. Which I think the Braves will come to regret. Um, there's not a whole lot to like about what he's done this season. He hasn't been terrible. In fact, he's, he has a better uh, fielding independent pitching ERA than. Uh, okay, never mind. He doesn't actually. Never. Mind. I was looking at the wrong number. He has a four seventeen FIP right now. Um, he has a lot of strikeouts, but he's also walked. Uh, he also walked 28 guys in 68 innings, which is not great. Uh, the last time I saw him out, which was that game against the Phillies, I believe, is just hard contact all over the place. No one was missing. No one was guessing either, or at least guessing wrong. So, but that's not a reason to. Be- obviously, it's not a reason to believe in the Braves as Will Smith. I think the reason would be the top of the rotation and the middle of the lineup, where you have Freeman and Albie, or Albie's at least. Maybe not so much the middle, but the the top to middle. The Albies Freeman Riley uh, run that also now includes, amazingly enough, the extremely good Jorge Soler Adam Duval combo. I mean, which I love. I love that those two guys are great. If you bring up Eddie Rosario, I'm going to scream. I know he's there. I know he's good. But <laughs> he's good. Everybody uh, like the the just the difference with this outfield production versus what we were 
having to slog yeah, it, through this it, summer was it gives this team it gives this team a much deeper lineup which they need because obviously you know they're down Acuna they're down Marcelo Zuna Dansby Swanson has been okay this season Travis Darno has uh, clearly not fully back from from the injury that kept him out for a while or not fully back but he's still he's still bad know, behind the plate but like he's still like you you hold out hope that he could figure it out and also sure, it's, he's he, not he expected to because he all he has to do is not be Kevin Smith yeah, and I think that's the other thing is it's less about what Darno can do, it more about what he is not, which is like you said, he's not Kevon Smith. He's a much better catcher than, or he's a he's a better off he's a better option obviously than Willie Contreras or whoever it is the the Braves take as their as their backup for him. But we had uh, yeah. true or false. I'm gonna do it. True and false is was Jonathan Lacroix a uh, a Brave at any point this season? He was on a team this year, but I'm not sure which one. No, he, he was, was the Braves. Brave. Two games. Yeah. He was a brave. brave. And Jeff Mathis. Wow. Oh, I, I could walk you through the, the summer of sadness in the catcher's situation uh, in Atlanta because it got bad after Darno. And uh, but, you know, Shea is coming from double A yeah. double A Mississippi think, winning uh, a title. It's great. I think otherwise, like, I mean, if you're looking for the one kind of the one reason not to leave it, I think it is the bullpen. It, mm. And it's not just Will Smith. It's. You have guys in Luke Jackson, Tyler Matzik, and A.J. Minter. Yes, they get a lot of strikeouts. They also walk a lot of guys. Um, the other big thing was Will Smith giving up uh, 11 home runs in 68 innings. That's really, really bad. Um, I think it will probably help to have guys like um, Enoa and... Uh, I guess that's really it, huh? I mean, I, I don't know if the Braves would trust or feel comfortable enough in guys like... Spencer Strider or I'm excited to see what he does yeah I mean I I can't imagine we're gonna see much of that bullpen beyond the top five of Smith Jackson Matzik Minter and Chris Martin um limit Minter I I don't it doesn't really seem like Richard Rodriguez has been all that helpful Mm -mm. um I wonder if he's going to make the cut for that bullpen but if over instead of having say um a guy like Jacob Webb or just Chavez who can handle some innings or maybe a guy like Strider if they want to try and see what they have there as a in potential low leverage situations but either way like I, I think the late innings are going to be a roller coaster ride for Braves fans if it's close and the problem with the Brewers is it's going to be close so mm. and I think the other thing with the Braves is obviously you know they have to try to figure out one of Burns or Woodruff and both before that bullpen starts to clamp down on them too because those are also two guys who I know Craig Council is very much playoff manager who will pull his starters in the third or fourth inning if he needs to and get straight to the bullpen. But those are two guys he can rely on to get at least 15 outs. You know you're going to have to face them for a minimum of five innings, some, barring something weird. So it's pretty imperative. You try to create as much of an advantage you can, as you can because, like I said, those five guys, you're going to be asking to hold down those leads late. They put a lot of guys on. They are not the most consistent one, at least one of them each night is going to put you in a situation where I, I know every Braves fan, every Braves playoff game is going to have at least one inning where there are two two opposing runners on and nobody out, and every Braves fan is just sitting there with their stomach doing cartwheels, going, "I here we go again." I just hate that there's a strong possibility we get Braves Dodgers and an NLCS all over again. Yeah, and I that'll be really interesting. No, it won't. No, it won't. <laughs> But yeah, I, I, I believe in the Braves in terms of the star power they have and the, the chunks of the, essentially essentially the top of the rotation and the top of the order. I think it's the for me, it's the bullpen that scares me the most with them is 
you know, how, how do they get through those late innings with a lead or how do they keep teams from, from taking narrow advantages and making them bigger? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Um, hope for the best, expect the worst. Go Atlanta sports. Um, San Francisco Giants, reason to believe in a World Series run, reason not to. Uh, 107 wins. I don't know. Can I just say that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it really is just a top to bottom good team. Like you, you look for holes here and you can find holes if you want to. It's not, it's certainly not the, you know, this isn't a team that's going to bury you with home runs, uh, with Brandon Belt out, you know, no one else, only, only Brandon Crawford and Mike Yastrzemski got above 20 home runs on this team this year, which granted for the, for the Giants is actually pretty good, uh, besides Belt that is, but this, there's not a big, you're not going to get buried under home runs. And you don't have to face a super top two like Burns and Woodruff or Scherzer and Bueller or uh, Morton and, and pick one of Freed or Anderson, I guess, whoever you want pitching second. Uh, I think just the reason to believe is just depth, just the overall depth of this team that doesn't really leave any weak spots. You know, that this is a I think you could probably say the same thing about uh, close to the same thing about this bullpen that you probably would about Atlanta is that it's not the most shutdown unit, but it's been really, really good. And more importantly, you look at the overall numbers, you don't really see the same problems of Plague Atlanta with, oh, they're giving up a lot of home runs, or, oh, they're walking too many guys. I think there is some home run potential, especially for a guy like Jake McGee or Harlan Garcia. I mean, you got to watch out. But they also now, this is this is some a name I'm really, really going to be interested to watch, see how he pitches. Camilo Doval has mm. just been electric for them out of the bullpen. Uh, the, obvious, the obvious comparison is going to be K-Rod as kind of that young, late-coming guy who just strikes everybody out. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. So, yeah, for me, the case for the Giants is just they are just a very deep, well-constructed, top-to-bottom good team. They are not going to beat themselves, I don't think. This is not a team that you're going to be able to kind of wait out. You need to beat them actively, which sounds a little silly, especially in baseball. But I think the, the point being, this is not a team that makes mistakes. This is not a team that's going to that's gonna self-sabotage. They are just they are consistent. They are relentless. They are just insane in the late innings, too. Um, to me, almost that, that late inning thing might make me might be the big thing for me to believe in this Giants team that they very clearly are just they 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 never stop. They have that 2015 Royals feel about them, of a team that is just kind of just hunting you down the whole damn time. Um, and they also just they never seem scared. You know that team never that team never looks worried or anxious. They just always seem like they're like okay fine we're down three nothing in the eighth okay we'll make it work. There's a lot to be said for that um, for that for that just kind of mindset. And I think the Giants have it in spades. I mean, if you re- if you want a real reason not to believe in them, I think losing Belt obviously really hurts. He's their best power bat by far. And is also going to... Re- I mean, on the one hand, the, the Giants are lucky. They can just platoon Darren Ruff and Lamonte Wade Jr. at first uh, until Belt is ready if he does come back. But that is, that is a major loss. I think uh, it's an open question as to kind of who the ace is on this roster right now. I, Logan Webb was very good in the second half. Kevin Gaussman was not. Um... You know, Anthony, the, the guys behind them are, are certainly not the strongest arms. Di Sclafani, Wood, and Cueto, they were fine this season. Di Sclafani was actually uh, very good. But, you know, none, none of those guys, I mean, certainly I think if you were a Giants fan, you would feel more comfortable going into the postseason with a top, the, the other top uh, rotations I mentioned. Or at least the other top, top halves of the rotations I mentioned. But ultimately that... I think I've said it before, it feels like, almost feels like nitpicking trying to find things wrong with this Giants team. They're just really just top to bottom good and i think if you want a team that i mean granted they, they won 107 games you're not exactly picking against the spread here but if you want a team that you can feel pretty confident about as kind of a, a relatively safe world series pick the, the giants feel like it i think the only thing that gives you pause is 
if the Dodgers do advance in the wild card series, the Giants do have to face the other best team in baseball in with only a five game uh, window, so to speak, to, to figure out if they survive or not. I think more than anything, the, the biggest thing that will impact the Giants World Series chances is whether or not they have to play the Dodgers. If they can avoid that particular obstacle, and I know they played well against them, that's still, the, to me, in my mind, the actual best team in baseball. But if they manage to avoid them, their World Series run gets that much more believable to me. I, I think I have them winning the pennant anyway. So, Okay. Okay. Uh, the Dodgers. The case for and against. Case for is their best team in baseball. <laughs> by the metrics, by the peripherals. I mean, they. I'm sure Giants fans can argue about it, but I mean, they finished with 106 wins to 107. It's not exactly like San Francisco left them in the in the dust. They they just both happen to have really really good uh, second halves, and we're both just very good teams anyway. I, I mean, I don't really feel like I need to go in, into total detail with about the Dodgers, what it is that makes them World Series favorites. I think at least trying to think of our uh, if our Fangraphs predictions, which you can go find right now on Fangraphs, I believe a third of us picked the Dodgers to win the World Series. So you know they're certainly there are plenty of plenty of good reasons to do so, and I don't really think I need to go through in depth. I just think that the big thing for me, though, is just that it is a relentless lineup. It is a huge, like, you you were facing down Scherzer, Bueller, Urias, one, two, three. That's really tough. It is really, really, like, but there is, like, for me, at least that kind of leads nicely into the, the reason against, and it's that the rotation beyond them now with Kershaw out is a real question mark. Um, I imagine Tony Gonsolin is the fourth starter. He has not pitched well this season, uh, coming back from injury. Beyond that, I don't really know what else the Dodgers have if it comes to needing an extra starter. I mean, they could try David Price, but he has also not been very good this season. Uh, they could try to bullpen it. They could try to whole staff a game. But that that is a real issue for them is that past Bueller, Scherzer, and Urias, there really is not much in the way of starting options. And we've seen this, too, for the Dodgers in the past where they have gone into a, into a postseason. In fact, they've done it the last few years with a rotation that is pretty much only three deep and then just had to kind of figure it out from there. They managed to make that work last year. I think they had a slightly better bullpen behind them last year to be able to do that, but they certainly have plenty of options. And then I think the other thing, obviously, is the loss of Max Muncy, when he gets back, how you know how long he's going to be out, how much that injury is going to impact him. Unlike San Francisco, the Dodgers do not really have an easy or very least great solution there. They, too, have a platoon that is almost certainly going to be Matt Beatty and Albert Pujols, Beatty against righties, Pujols against lefties. That's fine, but certainly neither of them nor the combination of them is as good as Muncy on his own. That is a huge, enormous loss for that lineup, particularly in Muncy's ability to get on base and hit for power just near the top of the order. He, is, he was the team's home run leader with 36. Um, this is where Cody Bellinger coming back to life would be extremely useful for the Dodgers, but they're clearly not going to get that. And then one other thing to keep a note of is with Chris Taylor struggling of late, the Dodgers are going to be using Gavin Lux in center field uh, probably, if they do make it, probably more often than not. He is learning very much on the job, so that is going to be a question mark too, is the outfield defense with him in between Mookie Betts and A.J. Pollock. Mookie is obviously a great defender. Pollock is fine. So, you know, that that's a much, much smaller thing to look at. But I, I think for the Dodgers, they don't have – quite the same depth as they usually do and they've lost two really big star power pieces in Kershaw and Muncie that would have helped paper over a lot of those depth issues so they're coming into the postseason a little weaker than I think uh than I think they would like speaking of teams coming in weaker the Chicago White Sox I don't think anyone's picking them to come out of the AL 
Um, yeah, I, I don't recall any of our writers picking them to win the pennant. Um, I mean, they, they have it's a really tough draw to get Houston right off the bat and then to have to deal with one of the Rays or potentially the Yankees or the Red Sox. And I think the Rays are pretty easily the favorite in the American League. I mean, there is a lot to like. You have a really dynamic lineup that has a lot of great pieces in it where they can hurt anyone in that lineup can hurt you at any time with the exception of, um, I guess, if Adam Engel's playing or, or Lurie Garcia, they're, they're probably not going to hurt you. But <laughs> otherwise, Luis Robert, Aloy Jimenez, Tim Anderson, Yasmani Grandal, Jose Abreu, it goes on and on and on. This is a really, really tough lineup to get through. And then, of course, like... Like all these other teams, you have to get through the top of the rotation that right now is Giolito and Lynn and I suppose Dylan Cease. But this is where I think I run into the real issues with the White Sox is the rotation is a real question mark. Lynn has not been great of late. Giolito has not been good of late. Dylan Cease is an open question whether he's going to strike out 15 and in seven innings or if he's going to walk 15 and in seven innings. Uh, Carlos Rodon is more likely than not not going to be a part of this postseason. I don't think they feel I don't know how they can feel comfortable with him if he's only throwing 90 91. Dallas Keuchel is, I don't think, an option either. He has been very bad this year and very much looks like he is nearing the end. Uh, I think the trick for the White Sox is going to have to be they're going to have to lean on that bullpen hard and heavy. That's where I get worried about uh, 93-year-old Tony La Russa being in charge of this <laughs> entire experiment. I am just waiting with bated breath for him to fuck up a playoff game beyond all salvageability. You know what's happening. You know he's going to screw something up hysterically badly because he is just... I'm like you and I are both, I think, amazed that they, the White Sox made it through the season without imploding, mm-hmm. especially because of La Russa, because we all just figured that there was going to be a Tony La Russa mess at some point. Um, I don't want it to happen in the playoffs because I really like this White Sox team, but it, it does just feel like there's going to be at least one instance where he makes a bullpen move where you sit back on your couch and go, what on earth did you just do? <laughs> yeah, I could see that. Um I just the record against bad teams versus good teams is just enough That's, where I'm just they, I, I don't believe in them. Well, against good teams they got to, they fattened up a lot on the AL Central. They really did. So I just um, uh, I don't just, know. Just for the record, because I I mean they, they didn't fatten up all of it, but like actually they went just a grand total of 31 and 26 against Cleveland, Detroit, and Kansas City. I mean what really helped is they just beat the crap out of Minnesota all year. They went 13 and six against the Twins. Um, which granted, they, you know, they didn't need to beat the crap out of, out of Minnesota to win the Central. They had the Central locked up pretty much all year. But certainly I do think you're you, you, there is something there. I think you're right about how they didn't really play particularly well against good teams. They went two and five against Houston, one and five against the Yankees, uh, four and three against Boston, three and three against the Rays, you know, four and three against the Blue Jays. Really, the, the only teams they handled, they went to combine 20 and six against the Orioles and Twins, and they went to combine uh 73 and 63 against everybody else which granted you know it, it's it's easy enough to cherry pick like that you can cherry pick like that for any team that's in the playoffs but it certainly doesn't give you the faith that this team can hang with equally good teams like tampa bay or houston or if it gets that far los angeles or san francisco or whoever else i don't disagree i don't disagree um the astros my pick to win the World Series this year. I like that pick. Um, I did not pick the Astros to win the World Series. I went, ultimately, I think, with Tampa. Uh, the thing you like about the Astros, it obviously starts with the lineup. That is a... What do you do? What do you do with this? Here's who you have to face just right off the bat. <laughs> Jose Altuve, Michael Brantley, uh, who follows them, Alex Bregman, Jordan Alvarez, Carlos Correa, Yuli Gurriel, 
Kyle Tucker. That's just ridiculous. That lineup goes seven deep. And even when you get to numbers eight and nine, you're talking about uh, if they play, if Jason Castro gets the starts over Martin Maldonado, which probably not going to happen, it's probably going to be Maldonado, but Maldonado is okay, but Castro has been great as a hitter. And then the rotating outfield spot currently between, it seems like Chaz McCormick, maybe Jake Myers, maybe uh, Jose Siri if he's over his injury. I mean, the, there are no, there are weaker spots, but there are a lot of really strong spots in front of them. Um, and then in the bullpen, you know, Ryan Presley is as shut down a closer as you can get. If they have a lead in the ninth, they are safe. I think the bigger problem is that just the pitching overall. Um, we don't know. I don't think we know we're going to get out of Granky, who just seems to be slowing down uh, more and more every year. McCullers is great, but I don't think you can count on him for more than five or so innings. I don't know what you're going to get out of Luis Garcia, who's already thrown 155 innings this year in his, uh, I don't believe it's his rookie campaign, but no, it's not because he, he, he pitched uh, 12 innings last year, but his, for all, it is actually officially his rookie campaign. But either way, you know, the, he has pitched a lot of innings this year, probably well past his career high. Uh, Framber Valdez has been up and down. Jose Urquidy has been up and down. Jacob Rizzi has been up and down. And then the relievers beyond Presley are just, I mean, I think it's going to be similar to what you saw with the with the Astros last year, just kind of mixing and matching bullpen-wise, just kind of arms all over the place. I think that, I mean, it seems like Dusty has guys he can trust in Presley, in Kendall Graveman, uh, his top lefty in Blake Taylor. He's got Christian Javier who can handle a few a couple innings there if need be, and I think is going to be a guy. And plus, I, and obviously, we are going to see some combo of Valdez, Urquidy, and Odorizzi probably working in relief, if not Garcia. You know, they have a lot of options there. What I don't think the Astros have is any real pitching consistency where they can feel confident game in and game out that they have the advantage there. And I think that's going to be a really big issue. Maybe not so much against the White Sox, whose rotation is a little on the shaky side, and maybe not so much against the Rays, who don't really have those number one types, obviously. But this Astros team against, say, the Dodgers, and boy, would that be a World Series. Uh, I think, obviously, would have to hand the, the starting pitching edge to L.A. pretty much every time out. Yeah. But that's obviously a ways away. Absolutely. Last team, your pick to win the World Series, the Tampa Bay Rays, the Montreal Rays, whatever you want to call them, depending on what they put up inside Tropicana Field. Who knows? Who knows Tampa what kind of Montreal. signs? <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, that's not going to go well. What a mess. What a mess. Um, that's what they're there for. That is what they're there for. Make the case for and against the Tampa Bay Rays winning the winning it all this year. Case for the Rays for me is pretty easy. It's just depth. They are just such a... And I know I've used this word before at the Brewers, but they are truly modular. They can they just plug and play. They mix and match. Um, they can build a lineup that will... It, to me, they remind me a lot of what the Patriots uh, kind of were at their at their peak. A team that could just beat you any way possible. They will just take away your best weapon, or they will attack you at your weakest spot. Or and in this case, you know, though, if you have a righty on the mound, guess what? You're going to face mostly lefties and a bunch of guys who crush righties. Got a lefty on the mound? Flip it over. Now you got a bunch of righties you got to face. Um, they're going to bring Shane McClanahan and Shane Baz. Uh, I would say it's their first two starters, and those guys are just electric. The trick with the Rays, obviously, is going to be managing all those arms because obviously, uh, between McClanahan, Baz, Drew Rasmussen, maybe Michael Walker, these are not guys who are going to go anywhere past three or four innings. The Rays' entire postseason is going to be bullpenning games for the most part um or i think it, it's going to be a long series basically of bulk guys you know starter is a starter in name only but obviously they have more than enough arms to make that work because again the rays are, are demons and magic can do whatever they want 
Um, I mean, I, I think if you want to make the case against them, it's probably the same case that existed last year that the star power on this team, this is more, this is, this team is always, the Rays are always uh, greater than the sum of their parts individually. I think unless Randy Rosarena goes off on another historic postseason run. And this is kind of the thing that I think his success last year overshadowed a bit. This race team last year really didn't hit in the postseason. They really had a hard time scoring runs. And I think some of that will be different this year because they have Wander Franco, who is a tremendous uh, offensive player at shortstop already. They have Nelson Cruz. They have a uh, Mike Zanino and Brandon Lau uh, coming in, not on slumps as they were last year, but coming in looking pretty good. They have the mix and match of opportunities. They have Austin Meadows hitting much better uh, this year than he did last. This is a, a better lineup overall, but I think it'll be in, it'll be the thing to keep in mind with them is can they score enough to make those those pitching decisions and make all those bullpen revolutions that much less stressful for Kevin Cash. And also because if this is a team that is going to be needing to go to its bullpen early and often, and I think that is the game plan, you want to be able to give your high leverage guys as much time off as possible. You do not want to be throwing out Andrew Kitteridge and Colin McHugh and Pete Fairbanks, especially all the time. You want to be able to get them time when you can. You want your offense to be able to put up a few crooked numbers every now and again so that you can use some of the kind of lower la- lower leverage guys in your bullpen like J.P. Fairhorizon or Chris Mazur, J.T. Chargeois, David Robertson if he makes a roster, and give those guys uh, enough time. Because I think that's I think if, if you're looking at the Rays, not just the offensive aspect of it, but it's can this team literally hold up long enough to get to the World Series and win? Because the fact that they do not have that Max Scherzer-type pitcher you can count on for 15 to 18 outs a game, or a start rather, they are going to have to use, I mean, it's by design. They have to use that bullpen a lot, and that means they're going to be making a lot of pitching changes, and that means they're going to be relying on guys that by the time we reach November are probably going to be pretty close to gas. Because this has been this has been the Rays all season, too. They have not had the luxury of resting their key bullpen guys. I mean, Kitteridge has thrown 71 innings. McHugh has thrown 64. Fairbanks threw 42 despite missing a couple months with a pretty serious arm injury. These are, these are guys who have been used pretty heavily in their time in Tampa, and it's to me the thing to keep an eye on is how long can the Rays kind of push them to the into the red before things break uh, is is you know that that's kind of to me the the main issue with Tampa. But otherwise, I, I think they're the most complete non-Dodgers team. Or I think the Dodgers and Giants are probably a little more complete. But I do think that the Rays, I mean, just the depth they have and just the way that and plus they're the Rays, they're always going to pull some silly bullshit because of the Rays, and I'm tired of. I'm tired of them embarrassing me. Part of me picking them to win the World Series is I'm tired of this team embarrassing me and making long runs every time I poo-poo them. So I'm done doing that. I believe in the Rays, much as it hurts my heart to say. I think they're a legitimate team. I just worry about the, about bullpen overuse, and I worry if that lineup has what it takes to to hang with better, you know, better scoring teams. There you go, John Taylor. Uh, good luck tonight. Hopefully the sir. Red Sox win. I think. Uh... I don't know. I shouldn't say hopefully. I don't really have a. I, 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 you know what? I'm going to say hopefully for for you as the you. the long time friend. Should be, it should be a game. Mm-hmm. There there be should be some game. baseball. I'm going to guess there's some baseball that happens here. Oh, we're going to get some real baseball tonight. Uh, we're going to get it for a long time. What 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 do you what like, what's the the final guess on how long this game takes? Uh, four hours nine minutes. <laughs> Oh my goodness! We're gonna be up all goddamn night. People. Oh my goodness! Oh, and the cherry oh, on you top. Think the Red Sox Yankees playoff game is going anything less than four hours. Well, baseball is going slower than ever. These two teams are gonna make. Oh my goodness! 
baseball went slower so this year. It's really good. You're from the sixth inning on the sixth inning <laughs> through the end of the game is going to take somewhere north of two hours. I guarantee that the last three innings of this game are going to feel like you're taking a standardized test. <laughs> Playoff baseball. Get excited. John Taylor, you can find on Twitter at J A Taylor. Go subscribe to fangraphs.com If you have not already, it's a great website. Great stuff. Go read Jay Jaffe and all the good folks over there. Meg Rowley, everybody. There, there's just all kinds of great coverage on Fangraphs.com. Go do that. John, I will talk to you next week. Sounds good, dude. All right. The Tuesday edition of the Chase Tones podcast rolls along where I am now joined by somebody who covers a team where I, I don't know how to talk to my non-existent children about the Pac-12 champion, Oregon State Beavers. That is a possibility. Like, we got to start preparing our kids to uh, to recognize what's what's happening in Corvallis this season and what might be happening going forward with Jonathan Smith, flipping the script here, really getting things on the right track in Oregon State. Um, I think just me being here in the Southeast and talking to friends and trying to encourage them to check out Oregon State or check out the Pac-12, like uh, Matt Green, friend of the pod, who's on every... Uh, Sunday and Thursday, he he <laughs> makes fun of me because Pac-12 after dark and just how inundated I am in the Pac-12 and the Big Ten as well. But uh, Oregon State has been a great watch for me this season, and I'm so interested in this team, where they're going, and to figure out what is going on with the Beavers. It's Brendan Slaughter of BeaversEdge.com. Brendan, good evening, sir. How are you? Uh, doing good, Chase. Thanks for having me on, and uh, definitely looking forward to talking some beavers. It's definitely been uh, a, a whirlwind kind of a year as far as, you know, uh, winning some games and kind of uh, rising up and kind of completing the rebuild, so to speak. So I know beaver fans are definitely living in, like, rarefied air right now, for sure. People are like, who who remembers Quiz? Who remembers James Rogers? Nobody. No, we've moved on. Who remembers Matt Moore? Don't care. We've uh, we've finally moved forward. Stephen Jackson, who that is? Uh, what's his Bernard? What was his first name? What was the running Evans back? Evans Bernard. Yeah. Yes. No, you. I mean, you basically just like uh, rattled off like some of the greatest, you know, Oregon State, you know, seasons of like the mid to late two thousands, and then obviously as the twenty tens kind of rounded into form, it had been it had been a struggle, and you know, you got to give credit to Jonathan Smith and his staff coming in in 2017 and inheriting just the disaster, for lack of better terms, that Gary Anderson had left. And to have the program where it is now, uh, it's nothing short of impressive. And it's been a lot of fun to watch and been really rewarding for someone like myself who's kind of seen the foundation be laid from the very beginning. Well, what's clicking this year for the folks that have not been able to stay up for, for any Beavs games here on the East Coast? What is clicking this year? Why is Oregon State in play to win the Pac-12 North? Yeah, you know, uh, it's kind of twofold. I mean, first, got to start defensively um, after being, you know, kind of the laughing stock of the Pac-12 and a defense that opposing coordinators uh, enjoyed playing against. This year, the Beaver defense is starting to hold their own. They've proven they can, you know, make a big stop when the game is on the line, like we saw this last week against Washington. And that's a huge development. Uh, and then on the other side of the ball, uh, the offense, the ground game, and just the consistency to balance. Uh, the Beavers have been a tough, a tough matchup for anybody. You know, they've got a strong running attack. B.J. Baylor has been, you know, the bell cow there. And um, then Chance Nolan under center has been able to 
limit his mistakes and kind of keep the offense moving at an efficient level. So more than anything for anyone who's kind of wondering how the Beavers got to this point, it's that the offense is still, you know, pretty much at that high level we saw under, you know, Jake Luton, Jamar Jefferson, uh, Tristan Jebby at times last year. But we're starting to see the wins start to show up as the defense has come around and the defense is now at a point where you can say, go get us a stop, and you feel pretty confident that they'll be able to do that just with the offensive firepower that you can uh, score on the other side. What happened against USC? The beatdown, like, just uh, we can't understate how important it was to get that victory, Clay Helton or not. Um, that felt like a big, big win for this program. And then you have UW right after. Um, which was bigger for the program and what was different about those two different ones? Yeah, it's interesting. I've had people ask me, and I've had people take, you know, both sides, you know, and say, you know, the Washington game was, you know, a bigger win given the circumstances and others say USC was, you know, given that they hadn't won down there in 61 years. Um, you know, I kind of find myself somewhere in the middle. I think they're both big wins for very different reasons. You know, USC was a big win simply for the fact that, as I mentioned, Oregon State had won down there since 1960. Uh, that's That's been a minute. So, you know, getting that win was just huge from, from a recruiting standpoint, from a program-building standpoint. And as far as why they were able to get that win against USC, they were just the more more well-coached and more well-coached team that executed better. I mean, the Beavers were able to run all over USC in their house. And, you know, that was definitely part of their game plan to success. It was just kind of, controlling the flow, having all the momentum and, you know, forcing some turnovers. And then this last weekend, I would say in a different way, was just as just as impressive. Uh, Jonathan Smith, obviously, with his history coming from Washington staff, you know, you knew this game was going to take on a whole lot of more meaning, even though the Huskies, you know, had kind of struggled out the gates a little bit this year. And they hang their hat on defense, and they definitely locked down Oregon State in some ways that they hadn't been locked down offensively this year. And the Beavers were able to lean on their defense, rally, and then get a, a big-time offensive drive uh, when it mattered to seal the victory. So I just think we're seeing a, a growth and a belief within you know this program that, hey, we know we can win every week instead of, you know, we want to be competitive every week or we, we hope to be competitive or hope to have a chance to win. The, the team is believing in themselves and they've got enough, you know, um, you know confidence in themselves now to where – I really don't think there's a game left on the schedule that you can circle right now for Oregon State and say that's unwinnable. Well, they're undefeated in the Pac-12 at the moment, and if they run the gauntlet, the Pac-12, I mean, just lock up whatever whatever it takes to keep uh, Jonathan Smith and Corvallis. And obviously, he was a four-year starter there, so it's home. But, I mean, if he keeps winning like this and he keeps uh, turning, turning heads, uh, people are going to come calling, I suspect. But um, what... In your estimation, you talked about like what Gary Anderson left, how he left the cellar uh, and Corvallis, and it really can't be understated. Uh, it was it was bad. No, it, it it can't. It was. I mean, yeah. I mean, you're talking, in my opinion, Oregon State like talent, and you know wherever they were at the end of 2017. I, I don't. It might have been one of the more least desirable jobs in Power Five, and to see what Jonathan has done in just just under four years. Uh, again, just like I said, uh, a credit and a testament to what he and his staff have been able to sell. It's been very impressive. Well, what has he gotten right? Like, how did he fix this? I know this is kind of a, a this would be a kind of a, an elongated answer, but 
Um, what has he gotten right? Like, what has Jonathan Smith nailed? Why are they in position to potentially make the Pac-12 uh, championship game this year? What has he done over the course of the last four years to fix it? I mean, recruiting is obvious, but also just like on on the field stuff. How has he how has he flipped the script to put them in this position? What is Jonathan Smith excelling at more so than anything else? Yeah, you know, I think it's just selling his vision and believing in that vision. I mean, you know, we talk about, you know, when he got there in 2018, you know, respectfully, I like to say the cupboard wasn't bare offensively. I mean, you know, you had Isaiah Hodges, you had Jake Luton, you know, you had, you know, some pieces in place, Artavis Pierce at running back. So, you know, I don't think the cupboard was quite as bare on that side of the ball. And I think that's why you kind of saw little bits of the first, you know, three years of Jonathan Smith, 18, 19, and 20, the offense had its moments where it would score 30, 40 points a game at times inconsistent, but the talent was there. The struggle was on defense. And you go back to the first year of Jonathan Smith, Oregon state was the second worst defense in the country, second worst defense in the country in 2018. And it's just been an uphill kind of climb from there. I mean, they needed uh, reinforcements on the defensive line. They needed reinforcements in linebacker. They needed better depth in the secondary and more impactfully, they needed Pac-12 level depth on defense. I think, you know, Gary Anderson maybe didn't do the greatest job at recruiting Pac-12 level defensive guys to, you know, Corvallis. And I think now we're seeing after a couple of years, you know, the defensive success through guys like Avery Roberts, who came in via the transfer portal, uh, organically recruited guys, as you mentioned, uh, each year from Smith. And, you know, just as I just mentioned it, Lastly, the transfer portal. I mean, it's been huge. I mean, whether it's getting, you know, as I mentioned, Avery Roberts, who is arguably one of your best, if not your best defender, comes out of the transfer portal early on, like early, early on when Jonathan Smith gets here. Um, you know, numerous guys on both sides of the ball. And I, I just think more than anything, they've left no stone unturned in kind of figuring out ways to get talent to Corvallis. As, as you and everyone else on your podcast likely know, you know, Oregon State is a unique sell, and you have to sell a certain vision to get, you know, top-level recruits to Corvallis. And sometimes that's, you know, pitching them out of high school. Sometimes that's pitching them out of the transfer portal when guys are coming from situations where it didn't work out. I think about, you know, Oregon State's backup running back came from South Carolina. They've had a couple of receivers uh, come from Big Ten territory, SEC territory. So just kind of piece by piece, it hasn't been – obviously a, a fast process but we're finally starting to see the fruits of that labor pay off and you just got to give credit to smith for you know having that plan and that vision and never you know taking any shortcuts it was always we know this is going to work out and we know we're going to get there and now we're seeing it the unsung heroes for oregon state's four and one starter who you know, call me crazy, but first on offense, I got to go with Chance Nolan at quarterback only mm. because coming into the year, he was not projected to be the starter. And in my opinion, like coming out of fall camp, I had Chance Nolan as Oregon State's third quarterback behind Sam Neuer and Tristan Jebbia. Obviously, Tristan Jebbia didn't end up being healthy um, in time for the start of the season. But, you know, I, I expected Sam Neuer to be, you know, Oregon State's guy this year. And, and me, like many other, you know, people who followed the program, we're quite surprised that he struggled early in that first half against Purdue. And, you know, then they make the move uh, midway through that third quarter, go to Chance Nolan. And it's been a completely different team chase since Chance Nolan's been under center. And, you know, I, I have to say, you know, unsung hero simply for the fact that I, I did not see him winning the starting job coming out of fall camp. And 
you know, that, that's a credit to his work ethic and just, you know, staying ready and, you know, being perhaps a little bit of a gamer. I think he's one of those guys that performs a little bit better in games than maybe in practices. So that was definitely one of those kind of um, unsung kind of hero moments this year because I don't think Oregon State maybe would have had quite this start if Chance Nolan wasn't under center. So that's, that's a cool um, kind of development and aspect as this season's gone along. And then uh, my other guy on offense I got to go with is, is B.J. Baylor. Um, you know, seven touchdowns on the year. At one point, it was the nation's lead. I know he's a couple behind now. Um, but, you know, to kind of be the guy behind the guy to Jamar Jefferson the last couple years. And, you know, Jamar Jefferson was, you know, up on Oregon State's Mount Rushmore of running backs. Coming into the year, nobody really knew, like, if he would be capable of being able to kind of be that bell cow guy. You know, obviously, as I mentioned, they brought in Deshaun Fenwick from South Carolina, and, you know, he was thought to maybe have a shot at the starting role. And B.J. Baylor, since game one, has been like, this is my job, and, you know, has done an impressive job to hold on to it. Uh, so I give him the credit on, on that side. And then uh, on defense, uh, I'm going to go with Avery Roberts. Um, linebacker, like I said, just the stud of this team. Um, you know, we saw this last week get named Pac-12 Defensive Player of the Week uh, for his efforts against Washington. He's kind of the straw that, you know, kind of keeps that whole Oregon State defense kind of in check, and I think his play has been really good this year. And then uh, in the secondary, i got to give a, uh, a shout-out to Rajon Wright, younger brother of Nashon Wright. Uh, his older brother got drafted by the Cowboys uh, this last year from Oregon State and you know he stepped in as a starter this year and has done a really good job so far so you know the depth has been there for Oregon State and it's been many more guys than I just mentioned who have kind of been able to step up and I just think more than anything having multiple guys that can you know rise up and make big plays when their number is called is a new development and the reason we're seeing Oregon State kind of win win games this year. Are we looking at a situation? Oh wow, Khaleesi's just uh, the Khaleesi the dog. Not a fan of uh, not playing uh, with the tennis ball at the moment. You can tell uh, it's time for a walk because uh, it's seven o'clock on the East Coast. Um, yeah, this is what yeah. you get when you put when you build your own studio in your in your own house. Um, I, I just I, this summer when we were doing the Throwback Thursdays in the pod, uh, we rewatched um, the Oregon State Oregon game. Uh, from man, it's been a while. It was the Rogers game. It was in Eugene, I believe. It was Jeremiah Masoli under center for for Oregon, and it was just such a big time feel. Um, obviously, it didn't end the way that you would have liked and Beaver fans would have liked, but I do think we're we're headed towards one of the bigger Oregon Oregon State battles we've uh, we kind of haven't seen in a long time. It's kind of like replacing what Washington and Washington State's been doing in the Apple Cup as of late. I think this is just huge, and I don't know if a lot of people are ready for this, but there is a strong possibility both of these teams are in the top 15 in the AP poll when they face off at the end of the season. Um, how do they match up with Oregon? Like, are you are you pretty optimistic? What are you what are you most excited about uh, with that game? I'm sure circled on your calendar later this year. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, uh, firstly, I just have to say, you know, Washington fans, uh, Chase, would tell you in order for that to be a good rivalry, Washington State would have to win one. Mm. That's fair. So, I mean, it, it. I think it's been a minute since Washington State. I know for a fact they never got it to, you know, Mike Leach, obviously, very famously, was never able to beat Chris Peterson and uh, um, company and, I guess, Jimmy Lake up there. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I, I think uh, it's... It is something that definitely could 
take on a life of its own in these next few weeks. Obviously, you don't want to get ahead of yourself. And, you know, I'm kind of still in that mindset of, you know, one week at a time for Oregon State, simply just for the fact that this is all pretty rarefied air for just me as a media member covering this team. I mean, you know, I've been on the beat since 2014, and Oregon State's best best win mark both those years or two two of those years since they got the five wins twice otherwise i've seen you know some two and ten seasons some one and eleven seasons and you know it, it's kind of like what can you believe in kind of a thing you know so it's it's very interesting just to kind of play it out and um you know based on oregon state's win over oregon last year i'm not I, i'll say that that's a game that i think oregon state will have a shot in you know the beavers run the ball extremely well and as we saw this last weekend against Stanford, I don't think Oregon has much of an identity right now. I think they are the most talented team in the Pac-12. Uh, don't get that twisted by any means. Um, you know, just dominant, dominant recruiting, and they're a really good team. But you kind of see that they're just struggling right now, and, and I've kind of felt that way all year. I mean, outside of the game against Ohio State, you know, played well throughout, I thought. You know, it, it's been a bit of a mixed bag, you know, um, came up really close. You know, they won, but came up close against Fresno State in week one, uh, struggled a little bit with Stony Brook in week two or week three, and then, um, you know, had a ho-hum performance against Arizona before losing to Stanford. So I would say I almost kind of saw Oregon's loss coming a little bit. I didn't think it would come this early in the season, um, but, you know, they're talented enough to run the table. I, I firmly believe that. And I think you could be setting up a situation where the winner of that Oregon-Oregon State game could be winning the Pac-12 North. I, I don't think that's a bit of a stretch, given that Washington already has two uh, Pac-12 losses. So, yeah, that's definitely going to be something to keep an eye on. And, you know, it's in Eugene this year. Oregon State got the win last year, so I know Oregon's going to be real ready for that game. But I certainly think um, it, it's going to be a dandy of a game just based on what we've seen this year, you know? Absolutely. I'm excited for it. I will be I will be paying attention. Um last thing and we'll we'll wrap up here. Uh matchups to watch on the schedule going forward. Is there one particular matchup um left in this calendar outside of Oregon that you you have circled that you're really fascinated to see how Smith's crew matches up with them? Yeah, you know, actually, you know, the um there's a couple games, you know, and it's mostly just to kind of, you know, get some old streaks off their back. So like this lot, like you know, I mentioned earlier, Beat a big, knocked off a big losing streak by beating USC, right? That was a good game to kind of see where you were against a team who I thought still had some of the Pac-12's more top-tier talent. Washington this last weekend showed me that you could beat a team that I still think has a pretty good defense. Um, you know, up on the schedule, Utah, uh, a couple weeks, is a team that historically, like, you know, as I mentioned, this last 10-year span, Beavers have struggled with. So that's a game I'm really circled. And then Stanford as well. Um, haven't beat Stanford since 2009. So that's another game that, you know, I'd like to see Oregon State do well just because they haven't been able to match up well with them super well recently. So, you know, now that I think they're a more complete team, those are a couple games I'm definitely keeping an eye on watching. There you go. There you go. How do the good folks keep up with your work in the good crew over there at Oregon State on Rivals? Oh, yeah. Head on over to beaversedge.com. Uh, it's definitely the place to be if you're an Oregon State fan. Uh, exclusive, you know, recruiting stuff, video updates, um, analysis, the whole nine yards. It's the place to be. Head over to beaversedge.com. All right. Well, keep up the great work, sir. Thank you so much for making the time this evening. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, go Beavers the rest of the way.
appreciate it, Chase. Thanks again, and uh, look forward to uh, jumping on again with you sometime. All right, the Tuesday afternoon edition of the Chase Owens Podcast rolls along where I am now joined by someone who has heard, all right, all right, all right, far too many times, I'm sure, because he covers Austin <laughs> FC. I had to do that. I had to do that, Chris Bills. Uh, Chris Bills is here. Chris, we good. got it out of yeah. the way <laughs> How much did they bring it up on the Austin FC broadcast? Like, how much Matthew McConaughey have you gotten uh, in your life this year? Oh boy, a lot. And, you know, I try to be grateful because I think it's it's good for the organization that they have him involved, but he's only been to, I think, one match this year. I think part of it is COVID. I think he lives with his, uh, either his mom or his mother-in-law who they've got concerns about, uh, you know, too much exposure and stuff like that. But it, it does kind of, it is kind of interesting that he's like the minister of culture, but, you know, he came out for the with the bongos in the first game and we haven't really seen him since. But, uh, you know, it's good to have a major celebrity like that involved with a team, especially in Major League Soccer, uh, where it kind of draws some casual eyeballs a little more than, you know, the Cecilio Dominguez's and Tomas Pochettino's of the world. Absolutely. And we'll get to him in a second. We'll get to him in a second. Um, But Austin playing a little bit better as of late, won their last two. Um, They took down Real Salt Lake on Saturday, which is a surprise for a lot of people. What happened in that game? Yeah, so uh, Cecilio Dominguez just scored a, a, a brace, uh, I think his second brace of the year. So um, two goals, and, uh, you know, Austin is interesting. They actually they won against LA Galaxy on Sunday, then they had to go midweek to, to Denver, to Colorado, uh, and they actually left some of the stars at home. Uh, so guys like uh, Sebastian Drusi and, and Musa Gite, um and... You know, even Cecilia Dominguez set out the first half of that of that match, and uh, Diego Fagundes wasn't there either. So they lost three 0 midweek, and then came home, and and they were well rested and ready to go. And uh, really, I thought it was one of their best performances of the season. And like you said, um, on the back of that LA Galaxy performance the week before, um, things are sort of starting to finally trend upward for Austin. It's been kind of a long slog here in the first first ever season. What? What's gone wrong? Uh, obviously, they're last in the standings. The point differential is bad. Is that a is that a really really uh, long answer <laughs> in terms of what's gone wrong yeah, for Austin what FC? What hasn't gone wrong is is probably a shorter answer. Okay, it's, uh, you know it's it's. I think there was some miscalculations on just how much they needed to be successful early, earlier in the year, but it, it's also you know a matter of depth because of injuries they have uh four guys who have basically been out for for most of the season um you know the big one has been danny hosen who was sort of signed to be the center forward he played five matches and didn't score any goals and there was a lot of frustration there because um you know he was a guy who hadn't really produced a ton in san jose they drafted him first overall in extension draft he wasn't producing and then we find out that he had a hip injury that, that he suffered in preseason and ended up ended up having to have surgery. Uh, left back uh, Ben Sweat went down with a torn ACL. Ulysses Segura, who would have been a nice depth piece, also has been out with a knee injury all year, and Aaron Schoenfeld hasn't played either with a knee injury. Uh, again, kind of a depth forward, but still, that depth becomes so important in MLS because of the congestion of the schedule, especially in a year like this where they started in April 
and it's just been you know so packed in with uh, the international windows and you know these triple match weeks which uh, you know it's 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 difficult in the best of times to have the depth in MLS uh, with that kind of stuff but also they just didn't have the quality right they they came in they had two designated players start Celia Dominguez is is a good player, but kind of enigmatic. And, and Tomas Pochettino has taken a while to settle in. Looks like maybe they finally found his best position. And uh, Sebastian Jerusi and Musajite didn't get here until um, you know August. And and really Musajite, the the new center forward, who's kind of been a big reason for the the uptick in you know goal production here of late, is you know he's finally fit and ready to go uh, after a 40 day. They designed him in late June. It was 40 days to get him in the country because of visa issues. And then uh, he had to get in shape after that. So they really only had him for, uh, you know, three matches at this point. So uh, that's kind of the story on Austin. Uh, there's a, lo- a larger conversation also happening about the coach, about Josh Wolf. I think that he will survive this season just because it is the first season of the club. It's his first season as a head coach. So he's had to do a lot of learning. I had to sit down with him a few weeks ago and kind of talk about you know, how much growth he's, he's had to go through, um, the things that he, you know, you don't know until, uh, you know, you actually do it about being a head coach. So there's a lot to dig into there about what's gone wrong. But, um, you know, I think at this point it's, uh, you were finally starting to see uh, this system at work. And, um, this club I think has a, a bright future because of all the things that I'm sure you want to talk about with the fan base, the stadium, you know, even with some of the the players that they've brought in, they have a good base to build on. And I think it's going to – I think it's not an FC Cincinnati or, or Inter-Miami Inter situation, uh, and I hope I don't regret, regret saying that. But I think that, you know, there, there's definitely – the pieces are there. What has the attendance been like? Where are they at? In the, I haven't looked at that recently. Where are they at attendance-wise this year? Well, they've sold out every game mm-hmm. um, so far. They actually sold out season tickets really early. They had um, more than 40,000 season ticket deposits for a stadium that only holds 20,500. So season tickets uh, were flying. Uh, they, you know, have had uh, very solid attendance. There's been a, l- a little bit of sparsity as they've gotten deeper into the season. And, you know, obviously with UT football starting, I think some people, um, you know, have maybe – left their tickets uh you know and and the resale value hasn't been quite as high so there were a few open seats um you know for some of these midweek matches and even on saturday when we had acl music festival and um you know university of texas kicked off um or they were finishing around the same time the game started so those kinds of things are definitely something i've got my eye on but um, as far as tickets sold, there's been no no issues there for Austin FC, and, and even the atmospheres have been uh, pretty raucous. I don't know if you've had a chance to catch any of those, Chase, but um, I think it's already sort of setting up as, as one of the better atmospheres in the league, which is kind of a, a unique thing in MLS that the new teams are actually able to, to kind of create that atmosphere easier than the teams that have been around for so long. Oh, you don't have to tell me. Uh, growing up in Atlanta and seeing Atlanta start at Bobby Dodd Stadium and make the move over to the Bins. Um, Austin FC, it's a cute story. It's a cute story, Chris, but um, I don't think it's going to match the the diehards and just the, the growth of the five stripes uh, in Atlanta. I don't know if you've, <laughs> you've seen that atmosphere. Been a little bit uh, more dubious. I need to get years. over there. It's, it's a thing. I tell people 
because having been to a bunch of different games for all the Atlanta teams, like uh, the Falcons is by far the worst game day experience. I think NFL in general is just a pretty crappy game day experience at this point. But um, Atlanta United is just if like you're trying to catch any kind of sporting event in Atlanta, like I would encourage you to check out Atlanta United. And I think that's the case for a lot more MLS cities than people might realize and i hope people figure that out more because i think that will help the mls more is that like attracting the college fan base vibes where it really is just a like you said a raucous setting and um a lot of the newer newer franchises have that uh, i mean just the the craziness that was orlando and atlanta early on and their rivalry before orlando went down the the gutter and you had like stuff being (laughs) thrown at atlanta united players like that was something that was happening a couple of years ago um, at the height of that rivalry. But yeah, I think that uh, it, I don't know if it's why that is, but it does seem like the, the newer clubs have an opening there and we'll see with more clubs coming into the fold next year in the next couple of years, how that works. But I do think it, it is kind of advantageous because there is a lot of, a lot of excitement um, when you do it right. But you also, I think part of it, it's not even just being good. You have to invest early. Like you invest, you can't do a slow build with these new, new franchises you have to just go for it right away to prove to the fan base that you're you're serious and that's what arthur blank got right in atlanta do you think austin is doing that to this point do you think or do you are you concerned that being this bad early on could could be a problem uh sooner rather than later i think certainly if it continues into year two that's when you start to ask questions i think there's uh really a honeymoon phase with the franchise right now where a lot of you know, especially with, uh, you know, I said it early on in the season with opening back up after COVID, I think people were were looking for, you know, a party, right? Like, you know, you're starting to get vaccinated. You're starting to, like, get it back out in the real world. And uh, Austin FC was the biggest party in town in, in April and in May and, and into June when they finally had home matches. And so I think a lot of people sort of went along with their friends to watch parties. The watch parties were, were pretty wild back in austin i was at all the all the road games but seeing the videos that was like almost in disbelief because you just don't see that in this country um you know maybe in places like atlanta and you know i think lafc does some of that as well but um you know with the music and uh the really the culture that they've created is is very um very latin heavy which is i think a real testament to where mls is right now in some of these markets and you know in a city like austin where there is so much, um, you know, Mexican and Central American influence, and that's the way that these fans digest soccer. For them to embrace the team and, and you know, to start things up like La Merga uh, de Austin, which has been the sort of heartbeat and the, the, you know, the soundtrack of, of these games, uh, it's really unique because they sing throughout the 90 minutes, which that part's not necessarily unique, but they actually go through a set list. So if you notice, if you watch uh, any Austin FC games, the order of the songs that they do is the same every single match. So it's almost like choreography. And, and um, you know, the fans, um, you know, it started to spread around the entire stadium. And, and so, you know, once you pick up on these songs, some of them are in English, some of them are in Spanish. Um, you know, there's some Selena mixed in there. There's, uh, you know, I think... It's just uh, a really good mix of, of music and culture, which I think is what Austin's all about. So 
Um, that part has been really neat to see. And, and it's uh, kind of amazing that the best part of this franchise so far has been created by the, the people that are actually paying to be there, right? That's uh, <laughs> that's kind of, hopefully at some point that the product on the field catches up with it, because I think that's when you maybe start to, to see some issues with people showing up and the atmosphere sort of dropping. But for now, I think that it's, it's one of the places to be in Austin, Texas, which is uh, no small feat in, in a city as, as hopping as this place is. Absolutely. Um, reasons for optimism in year two are what? Sebastian Jerusi and Musajite. Um, Sebastian Jerusi in particular, I think, is a top-level player in MLS. Uh, so we've seen him come in in late August and really throughout the month, month of September. Uh, as the team was still struggling, you could see that, you know, it's not just his skill on the ball. He, he played in Champions League. He played for then at St. Petersburg in Russia. Um, so he's he's obviously got that quality. He came in at a higher price point than anybody else that Austin's bought. I think he was around $7 million transfer fee. And he has um, completely changed the dynamic of Austin with that quality. He sees the game in a different way. But he also works really hard. He, he, he presses very well. And I think that, you know, you look at the players that have done well across this league, have come in at about the same age as he is. He's 27. It reminds me a bit of Sebastian Javinko, the way he plays. It reminds me a bit of Nico Darrow, the way he plays. I'm not saying he's going to get to that level, but he's certainly got the quality and those characteristics of just being a competitor uh, to go along with the quality that he didn't just come here to show paycheck. He came to, to win and, and get results. So it's been a little bit weird watching him sort of try to adapt to a team that hasn't, things haven't gone very well. And then all of a sudden this guy's expected to come in and be a leader. So I think, you know, if he can sort of insert himself into the group in that way over the off season, I think that you could really see an explosion. He's already the leads the team in assists, which, which he's only been here for a month and a half and he's got five assists. Um, and uh, so I think that's been really impressive to see. And, and also a couple goals, I think we'll see more of that throughout the end of the year. So that's definitely a name to watch. I think whether you're playing MLS fantasy or you're just looking for a, a dark horse MVP pick to, to bet on next year. I, I don't know if he'll quite get that far, but I think he's a name to watch certainly in this league as he gets going as the team gets better. I like it. I like it. Um, why is the offense struggled so much? Because the points for, just yeah. really, really bad. The offense is not there. So if is there a schematic reason as to why Austin FC has not been putting the ball in the net? Well, they haven't had a center forward, which has uh, been a problem, <laughs> to say the least. Cecilio Dominguez has done his best to play that position, but as soon as you saw Musa Jite, uh, kind of plug in as a, in that center forward role, um, his ability to hold off defenders to kind of shift the point of attack to provide an outlet for, for Austin FC to, um, you know, they, they want to play out of the back. They want to play possession. That's, that's all well and good. But if you don't have somebody to hold, hold the ball up, up top, let the wingers and, and everybody else get forward, it's going to be a tough slog. And that's really, I think, been, been the biggest issue. And, and it sort of brings the question is that, you know, Josh Wolf's fault for, you know, not being able to solve that problem on the fly is that Claudia Arena's fault for not, you know, for, for not signing a center forward to begin with. Um, you know, Danny Hoson, like I mentioned earlier, was was the kind of the guy there, but he, he's never really shown it in this league. He had a 12-goal season in San Jose, but other than that, really hasn't done much. So 
Um, you know, the lack of a center forward, it almost feels at this point, now that you see what Musa Jite can do, he's just 21 years old from Senegal, but he's got a lot of quality. And you can already see that, uh, you know, it feels like Austin's been playing with 10 men <laughs> for the entire season because they just didn't have anybody that was really playing that role the way it's meant to meant to be played. Hmm. Um, Dominguez, he's, I think he's got what? He's up to seven goals this season, the most of any Austin FC yeah. player. Why is he soared? What is he doing well? Yeah, I mean, he's he's been uh, uh, from what I you know I hear from from fans of, of Club America where he was, and, and you know certainly the reputation of him at Independiente was that uh, you know he goes through these spurts when you think that he's you know one of the best players in the world, and then he goes through spurts where he's he's just he doesn't look very good at all, and and we've seen both of those in Austin. He had a, a stretch midsummer where. He actually got subbed out 30 minutes into a match because uh, he was just, they, you know, they said that he, he had been sick, but uh, it seemed like he, he had just kind of lost his fitness um, at some point, which which is kind of concerning. But when he's been at his best, he's been really, really good. Um, and I think that he looks motivated and, you know, he's coming off of this match against um, RSL where he had two goals and, um, you know, he's finally playing out on, on the left wing where he's most comfortable and so I think the fact that Sebastian Drusi is now there to carry the load means that, you know, Cecilia Dominguez can kind of be that enigmatic winger, sort of a Christian Pulisic type that, you know, floats in and out of games. But when he, when he you know, when he has the ball at his feet, you know that something dangerous can happen. The other thing about Cecilia, though, he spends a lot of time on the ground, which never ingratiates uh, to, to an American crowd. So he's been the most hated man. And about every road stadium he's been in, and, and even some nights in Q2, <laughs> you hear <laughs> the home fans sort of giving him crap for uh, for diving. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's part of the game, I, I suppose. And uh, if the refs aren't going to crack down on it, um, he certainly earned his share of calls this year that way. So um, certainly a dramatic character, but that makes things fun every once in a while, doesn't it, in sports? Absolutely, absolutely. Um Last thing we'll wrap up here, Chris. Uh, what are the goals for the remainder of this season with the playoffs out of reach, obviously, um, getting through year one here? What are what are the goals for Wolf in this group? Um, what are you looking for as well down the stretch here? Well, I think it's pretty clear cut because, uh, you know, over here at the Striker Texas, we've been covering uh, the three worst teams in the Western Conference. And uh, at this point, what you're playing for is pride. And, and in Texas, that means everything. And so, there's a trophy called the Copa Tejas that these three teams will play for. Austin actually controls its own fate. If they can beat Houston in a couple of weeks and then go to, to Dallas and, and get a win, they'll, they'll hoist that trophy, um, which would be you know a huge win for the fan base. And I think also just trying to finish ahead of one or both of those teams in the standings. I think playoffs are pretty much shot at this point. But if you can sort of get some hope going into year two, and the other thing for the coaching staff, I think, is to start to assess the middle at the bottom part of this roster because I think you're starting to see a starting 11 form. You know that, the, you know, I think they could use some help at center back. But really, other than that, I think a good offseason of, of um, you know, role player signings, whether it's re-entry drafts, um, you know, MLS super draft or, you know, just free agency is going to take this team uh, to another level that, that, you know, they could be easily sneak in the playoffs next year if they get everything right. But um, that's a tall task that they, they've got to they've got to get right, because uh, I think the expectations are going to be that they're way better than they, they've been 
this season as far as the results go. They've had, had good performances here and there, but uh, it's time to to kind of kind of put up or shut up. And I think that they've got six games here to to hoist the trophy and to to reassess the to get the roster right for next year. I like it. I like it. How can the good folks keep up with you and the the great work going on covering on the, this Austin FC club? Yeah, so I've been covering Austin FC, I like to say, since it was a city council beat. Mm. <laughs> so I uh, I moved here in 2016, and when Anthony Freeport announced that he was considering moving Columbus Crew, uh, I started covering for the Austin American Statesman. Uh, that actually led me to, um, you know, go independent and find an investor to launch what what, what is the, the Striker Texas so people that follow soccer will have heard of John Arnold, uh, one of the foremost experts on CONCACAF and all things Central and, and North American soccer in the Caribbean. Uh, he's covering FC Dallas for us, does some great work. We cover a bit of the U.S. national team in Mexico as well. And, of course, Houston Dynamo and, and Houston Dash and, and trying to get to as many stories as we can on the lower levels as well. We've got some great USL writers. And, uh, you know, we're trying to build something that, that I think um, – you know, we see an opening in in that, that I think we were talking about before we came on air of just you know there's a void right now of MLS coverage, but this league is exciting and and it's it's young and there's clubs like Austin that are making waves and and really relevant in their towns and um, you know it's time for you know if the traditional media is not going to do it then then you know why not do it ourselves right and so um, yeah give me a follow at Chris Bills and and check us out on StrikerTexas.com. It's a long-winded way of, of uh, saying, you know, we got a uh, 30-day free trial. So, uh, you know, come check us out and see what we're all about and uh, let us know if if you think that there's room for uh, this type of coverage in, in your market, no matter where you're at, because that, that might be the future. I mean, that would be great. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Um, yeah, MLSsoccer.com is a great site, too. Like, I, I just think the coverage, and there's just so many great soccer writers uh, in this country that, I don't know, it's getting bigger and bigger, but it needs needs the coverage to continue to grow and i yep. i uh i hope to see it because it's fun and i think it's a sleeping giant if it can get covered also i would i would fix the calendar like this is the, the just being in the <laughs> middle of football season with basketball coming in a matter of weeks baseball postseason it's just i i don't know i'm i'm not well enough uh into the the scheduling process but man if there is a way to move this to early spring finish up by august like their super bowl needs to be in august i don't know how how you fix that when you fix that but i think that would that would help a lot um from, well, from my perspective I mean, it depends how you look at it and yeah. how things shake out but with this new league cup league's cup uh being in august i think could be a huge yeah. huge boon for them um because that turns into i think they'll have more eyeballs on that than they will mls cup just because you know you get league mx involved uh, they're betting a lot on that, though. Yeah, it, it, they are. But, uh, you know, I, I'm a big believer in that as well, that, um, you know, to to get those eyeballs that you've been craving for years, it, you got to get, you know, you got to be relevant in Mexico. you got to be relevant with the fans from the fans of Mexican teams that live, in, that live in the United States. And the only way to do that is by beating them head to head. So we'll see how that shakes out but you know to your point i I don't know that the calendar will change but you know you have important games in that late summer period when the only thing happening is is baseball which i think is sort of the sweet spot for mls and then like you're right once football gets started it's uh 
it's a tough slog in some of these markets. And, and even Austin, you know, when you talk about media coverage, I think is, is seeing that right now because there's only so much uh, love and money to go around, you know, some of these places. And uh, it's just easier to cover, cover football because you've been doing it for years. Absolutely. But, it's great right. talking to you, though. Yeah, absolutely. This is great. I'll check back in again soon. Keep up uh, the great work as the season winds down. But, uh, yeah, Chris, thank you so much, and I will talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Chase. Appreciate you. Nicely done, nephew. Chase Thomas Podcast. Hell yeah.